Welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. Look like this. On these notes, you'll get a big idea of where we're going, some questions to reflect back on what we talk about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app called Uversion. just says Bible when you download it. Uh, go to more and then events in that. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone and you'll get sermon notes versus questions announcements. You will even get a link to this if you want to give blood today. So you can click right out of there on that. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Uh, this is Acts 14 verse 19. It says, but the Jews came from Antioch to Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Such a great verse to start with. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you uh, in the midst of all that we go through. Father, there are times where we think that you should be doing a certain thing a certain way, and yet you're moving completely differently than we think. And so I ask that you would teach us to trust you in all of our moments because you are good and that you'd be glorified by what we say and how we love and serve and follow you, that all that we are would lift up and glorify you in all that we do and we remember you in the midst of that. We ask that in your son's name. Amen. All right, so we are doing a series through the second part of the book of Acts. We're calling it Acts Part 2 or Acts Squared, like the sign behind me. Uh, in Acts Part 2, we're covering uh, chapters 13 through the end of the book. A little over four years ago, we did uh, chapter uh, Acts Part 1, and that was chapter 1 through chapter 12. Uh, the second section really focuses mainly on the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys and what came about as the result of those missionary journeys. Paul is trying to teach everyone what God has done to rest rescue and save us. And last week and this week and next week, what I really kind of want to focus on is what happens in the midst of opposition to that. When you want to share the good news and things don't always go the way that you think. Because Paul was somebody who was chosen by God specifically for the work that he was doing. The Holy Spirit set him aside and yet it wasn't easy. And there are a lot of people in Paul's life in the world at that time that saw all the setbacks Paul went through as confirmation that God was not in what Paul was doing. Like, sometimes we have this thing today. We think if God is in something, it has to be easy. God's going to smooth all the roads so it's smooth sailing. How does Paul respond to this premise that you wouldn't suffer at all, that nothing bad would be happening if God is actually with you? What Paul doesn't say is, God's with me in spite of all I'm going through. Paul will say that his sufferings are not a denial of the gospel and God working. They're actually going to be a confirmation of the gospel and God working through him, just as things like this happened to Jesus himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, he says this, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And so when Paul says this, death is at work in us or in me, it's a metaphor for his suffering. And he says, just like Jesus suffered and eventually died and that brought about greater life for all of us, so I, in living and loving and serving my life for Jesus, this same thing happens. My suffering, my ultimate death through all of this is going to lead to greater life for all of you. Death working in me leads to life in you. He's talking about the fact that his sufferings and his, in the ministry and his trials are all because he's trying to 
minister and speak of the good news of God's rescue. And as a result, he suffers, yet it leads to greater life, greater spiritual life for those who are around him. Now, I'm going to Acts chapter 14. That's where we're at. We're going to kind of walk through what this looks like in this section of Paul's journey. Now, Paul and Barnabas are on what's called his first missionary journey. This will cover about five to 600 miles by sea and between seven to 800 miles on land. And they had all these setbacks during the midst of it. Uh, last week, after preaching the good news of God's rescue to a town called Iconium, the leaders get up in arms and they drive Paul and Barnabas out of the city. So they flee to a town called Lystra. Uh, I almost called today's message flipping the switch because they're going to go from wanting to worship Paul and Barnabas to wanting to kill them. And it, it might be a little funny, and it might not if you're in the actual situation, but it's kind of like Jesus. Jesus goes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and everyone's like, woo, king of kings, woo, this is so great. And because Jesus doesn't do what they want him to do, within a week they're like, kill him, let's get rid of that guy. And this kind of happens today in a lot of conversations we have, maybe not to that extent. But if you're talking to somebody, and you're friends with them, and all of a sudden you realize they might be the opposite political persuasion than you are, it's like, I am done with you, don't talk to me. I, I have friends on Facebook who, well, you know, Facebook friends. But I have friends on Facebook, and, and they have actually posted political things and said, oh, if you disagree with me, just unfriend me. I'm like, how do you ever have discourse if that's what it's like? This is, apparently you have friends like that too, okay. <laughs> so we're going to backtrack a little bit and kind of talk about what that looks like and what God does in the midst of those things. So Acts chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, there's this plot against Paul and Barnabas, and Paul learns of it, and it says, They learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Okay, so here's the map again where they're at. So they were just up in Iconium above that red arrow. Now they're going to Lystra. Lystra is about 20 miles, and eventually they'll go to Derby, which is about 60 miles from Lystra. So that's where they're at in the world. And what you have to understand is that this is an outpost that Caesar Augustus made into a Roman colony in 6 BC, but they didn't really populate it. I mean, Romans... You know, ruled the land, had the country and all of that, but the Greeks really ran the commerce in that city. Uh, they didn't have a, really a large garrison there, and the Jews really had no influence. So the gospel might be able to go a little further here, but the people in the town, they were uneducated. That doesn't mean stupid. But what it means is most of them probably didn't read or write, and they had their own dialect, their own language. Much today, like if you went down to... Uh, New Orleans. Uh, they would speak Creole and Cajun, and they have kind of their, they'd understand you, but you wouldn't understand everything they said. If you went to the Appalachian Mountains, there are people who live in there who have their own dialect. I, I tried to do my impressionation of what that sounded like, and I offended a lot of people before, so it's not going to happen. Uh, but, but they have their own dialect, and, but they will also understand what you're, it's kind of like that. These people had their own language. So Paul and Barnabas have to find a way to speak the gospel into this area, into this cultural context that makes sense. So it starts like this, Acts 14, verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began 
began walking. Now, we don't know how long they were there before this happened. Could have been a day, could have been a couple weeks, could have been a couple months. We just don't know. But finally, something happened where they could take an inroad into these people to speak the gospel. What happens here in the text is this is written in a series of triads, a series of threes. The man is looking, listening, believing. Uh, He could not use his feet, crippled from birth. He has never walked. These parallels, what Luke is doing is trying to make the connection between a healing that Peter does in Acts chapter 3. <clears throat> there are all these triads that take place there in Acts chapter 3. And what Peter is sa- or Luke is saying is the same God that's working in Peter's life is also working in Paul's life and in the ministry of what Paul is doing. He's connecting it together to show the same spirit is working in all of these places. Now, today, when we talk about healings, we have a hard time kind of believing in healings. Like, we want healings, but we have a hard time believing in it. Uh, We have this cultural mindset that is called the West. Uh, That's kind of how we view the world. What that means is we are the product of something that is known as the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is kind of an arrogant term that came about a few hundred years ago, and it's the idea that we have more light than other people who have gone on before us. Again, it's like everyone else is in darkness and they're dumb, but we are enlightened. Think about this again, it's political season in terms of politics, right? Anybody who doesn't agree with you is unenlightened, right? And if they would agree with you, they would then be enlightened. Now, the Enlightenment brought about some really interesting things, like the scientific revolution. Eventually, because many of the people involved in the, in, in the Enlightenment were people who believed in Jesus, and so you had this thing that came about called apologetics, a reasoned response to the faith that we could talk about the rationalness of who God is and how he works in the world, a way to defend who Jesus is. The Enlightenment had some great scientists who loved God. One guy's name is Sir Francis Bacon. That is the best name in the world, right? Maybe not. Okay. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton. Uh, What they did is they saw the rationality of how God created the world as a way to begin to understand him better, as a way to, you know, connect with him on more and more levels, and it was really kind of cool. But in a secular sense, the Enlightenment brought about this thing that said human reasoning, human rationality should stand above everything else, and that's going to fix our problems. Again, there were good things. If They said if there's something you know, communicate it. If there's something you don't know, search for it. And so in this comes about modern science, industrial revolution, modern medicine, modern democracy, apologetics, that Christianity that can be reasoned for. But on the other side, it undermined certain things because it raised up human reason above all else and it choked out a lot of other things. Pure reason got to the point where we got rid of the possibility of anything that is supernatural or things beyond our reason. And the result of that is as we sit in the West today, we naturally want to rebel against things like miracles or healings or things like that. Now, in Paul's day, miracles were accepted. They weren't taboo. They, they didn't happen all the time. Like in the scriptures, you see a lot of miracles, but that's very few and far between. It doesn't happen all the time. I know you're reading it sounds like it, but it really doesn't. And so what they are doing here is, is Luke is wanting you to see what God is doing in the midst of this miracle and what happens as a result of that. And the people in the city, what they're going to do is jump to a bunch of crazy conclusions the exact opposite direction of what the miracle was supposed to point to. This happens to Paul and Barnabas. Instead of the populace seeing this miracle as confirmation of God's good news and his message through Paul and Barnabas, what they do is the exact opposite. They get sidetracked by the miracle itself and start to want to worship Paul and Barnabas in the midst of it. And a lot of us, not in the same way, but we kind of do this today as well, we will start to lift up and glorify people who do really cool things and not Jesus himself. 
And the sad thing is, a lot of people today love that praise. They love that adulation. And they start to set themselves apart from everybody else and stop pointing to Jesus being great, and they think they are great. Like, does any one of you hang on like a celebrity's words? Oh, so-and-so said this. Did you hear that? Or a musician's words. Oh, my goodness, so-and-so said this. What, what do we care what Eminem or Billy Elish or Taylor Swift think about politics? What do we care? Apparently, you care. Okay, I don't. Some people will hang on to preacher's words, whether from a radio show or a website or a book or a podcast, and we lift up somebody. We are all just people. We need to stop lifting up people and lift up Jesus himself. Today we find it so easy to exalt a messenger. And when we want to make men and women, rather than God, become our sense of security. And men and women, you know what they do? They fail. That's what they do. And then we say, oh, God must have failed because so-and-so failed. No, God didn't fail. People are dummies. That's what happens. They're unenlightened. They think they're enlightened, but they're not. And they fail. This is why our faith is in God himself. So we have to honestly examine our hearts to see what we are worshiping today. Do we truly worship and serve Jesus in all things? So see if this relates. Chapter 4, verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, so in their local dialect, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Not, oh my goodness, look what God just did, but these guys must be God. Paul heals this guy, and he's probably thinking, I'll get to preach the gospel now. People are going to see it. This is going to be great. Doesn't go according to his plan. Okay, They lift up the voices, Satan and Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Now, this is funny when you, when you see what this looks like, because we think of Paul today as this towering giant of the faith, wrote most of the books in the New Testament. Uh, you, millions or billions of people have come to worship Jesus because of what Paul did. This is what the people in the town see. Barnabas, Zeus, oh, right? Paul, Hermes. He's built like a junior high girl. It's like me. It's like, oh, that's cute. It's funny. It's funny. Anyway, just how we see things. So historically, the Lyconians, they had this legend that happened in the city that uh, in the hill country of this area, at one point, Zeus and Hermes had come into the city disguised as mortals. And they went around the entire area trying to find a place to have lodging. And they were turned away from a thousand different homes. Eventually, they end up at this older couple's place named Philemon and Bossus. They invite them in, they they feed the gods, and because they had done this without knowing that they were gods, the gods then turn their cottage into a temple, and they make a couple of priests and priestess of this temple, and then when they died, this couple is immortalized as a great oak and a great linden tree, and all the inhospitable homes and people were all destroyed, much like these stories typically go. So they didn't want this to happen again because they believe this story. Verse 13, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. This is sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And again, they're most likely here speaking Lyconium. So Paul, it's a localized dialect, so he probably doesn't know it. And he's probably thinking, this is great. Everybody's showing up. It's such a commotion. I'm going to preach the gospel. This is great. And then all of a sudden, here comes the priest with the oxen. He's like, oh, crap. You know, what am I going to do now? Oh, my goodness. What, what do we do here? They're horrified. Verse 14. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. It's like, look, I got five, t- 
ten fingers and ten toes, and I put on my tunic just like you and my sandals just like you. He says, and we bring you good news. That's the word for the gospel. Paul's trying to get to a place where he can talk about God's rescue and God's hope and his restoration, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You don't have to live in fear that Zeus is going to show up and burn your house to the ground. God wants to rescue you and bring you in relationship with him. You can trust him. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, and he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So what Paul does is he starts to talk about this natural revelation of what God has done in the world in a way to try and connect these people to what God is doing. He is bringing you good things, and he has brought you something even better, restoration with himself. Your sins can be forgiven. You can be in a relationship with God again. Verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. I think if Paul would be able to go a little bit longer, the sermon would have got even better. Uh, But this is probably as far as they got at this point. And this is the best laid plans going awry. And if you look at Paul and Barnabas and their journey, they got locked out of a site in Antioch. They got run out of Iconium as heretics. And now they're being deified in Lystra. And I think if you would ask them, which one of those is better? Which one do you want? They'd say none of them. Because I don't want to be killed, but I also don't want to be worshipped because all those things are stopping the proclamation of the good news of the gospel. And this is one of the reasons that Paul is mocked by a lot of people. Because it wasn't simple. It wasn't easy. It didn't always go like he wanted. Not everything went well. Today, if we were a church that sent Paul and Barnabas somewhere and paid for their missionary journey and they had all these problems, we'd probably start to question. We'd be like, oh, I don't know if that's the right place for them. Maybe they weren't supposed to be there. If you decided, I think God's calling me to this place and you went somewhere and all these hardships hit you, you might be like, maybe God didn't call me here. Maybe God called me to go do something else. I, I, I don't know. There are all these failures See, the Lystrians, 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 I don't know how you say it, okay, whatever. <laughs> they, they don't want to kill them yet, but they had this misplaced praise. They had, they had this idea of what God was supposed to be when he showed up. They only wanted to follow God on their own terms. Now, does that sound familiar? Yeah, it's like a lot, of, even Christians do this. Uh, one commentator says it like this, Paul and Barnabas never got to explain the incarnation because the people were determined to keep them within the boundaries of their religious presuppositions. Because what? Because they were more enlightened. I have more light. I have more truth. Now, I know what God's supposed to be and how he's supposed to act. When you live on mission with and for Jesus, when you try and speak the gospel, when you feel like God is leading you somewhere, it doesn't always go like it does in your head. Sometimes it's a lot more difficult. And I would say it's true for our culture today. We have built a box for God. We refuse to let God be who he is. Even Christians do this. Yeah, this is how God's supposed to work. Lloyd Ogilvy put it this way. When Jesus was born, there was no room at the inn. But today, we not only have room at our inn, but a penthouse suite away from reality. Jesus is a VIP to be honored, but not believed or followed. In America, he is a custom, but not the true Christ. A captured hero of casual civil religion, but not the Lord of our lives. What he's saying is, is we think we are more enlightened than what God has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. And so we cut Jesus down so he fits into our nice little box. 
But what does Jesus do? Many times through hardships, he blows our boxes to pieces, and he reveals who he is. Again, like when Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he's riding that donkey, and all the people are like, oh, yeah, this is great. Hail to the king, baby. Hail to the king. And then all of a sudden, because he doesn't do what they want him to do, because he doesn't kick the Romans out of Israel, and he's actually going to die instead. They're like, crucify him. Get away with him. Now, as I said, uh, when you look back to Acts chapter 3, there's this juxtaposition of these two miracles. And you see the difference of how people reacted to the miracle Peter did when he healed a guy at the temple versus what happens here. And I think they're meant to go together. That's why they're in the same book and kind of have the same wording. And chapter 3, verse 6, Peter looks at this guy who is crippled and he says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. No money can purchase this healing. It's a gift of the grace of God. And then Peter takes this guy, and he lifts him up, and the guy begins to leap. And that word leap there actually references a lot of things out of the book of Psalms, where it talks about when Messiah comes and God heals the world, they'll be leaping and rejoicing, and that's what this guy does. And then this guy actually goes into the temple to worship God, and he's leaping and rejoicing and praising God. And all the people in the temple start to praise God because of the miracle. It's the exact opposite of what happens in Lystra. One writer said this, when, you, like when people want to worship something and, you kind of, and God blows apart the picture, he says, hell hath no fury like a worshiper scorned. And that's what happens here. They want to worship Paul and Barb's like, no, 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 don't worship me. And what happens is all the issues now from Iconium and Poseidon and Antioch, they now follow them to this place. Verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. That's like, dun, dun, dun. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Seriously, flipping the switch, right? I'm going to worship you. No, I'm going to kill you. Hey, Paul, how many converts you have in Lystra? Uh, I don't know, but I helped out the rock merchants. I sold a lot more rocks when I was there. It's, stoning was a brutal, bloody thing where they threw rocks at your body and your head until you were dead. When I was a kid, we didn't have a lot of money. And so me and my friends, we'd go down at the end of the street and we had these things called dirt clod fights. Anybody have dirt clod fights growing up? All right, few of you. That's, that's great. I thought it was going to be like one or two. Yeah, me too. I'm glad you guys are honest enough to say it. So these things called dirt clod fights. And because, you know, what do you, have? you have dirt. That, that's what's readily available. And you throw it at each other. Now, we had one rule in a dirt clod fight. I asked for a service, and they didn't know what it was. But anybody, what was it? No rocks. Exactly. That's, it's your dirt clod. No rocks. You throw a rock. Bing. It's like, ow. You are out. You're ostracized. You can't play with us for like a couple weeks because you threw rocks. And a stoning, there's like one rule, no dirt clods. It's, 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 it's all rocks. It's got to be rocks. Now, some people wondered if at this moment, maybe Paul, while he's being stoned, thinks back to how he oversaw one of the first church deacons, a guy named Stephen, and his death. Because what Paul did to somebody else is now actually happening to him. In Galatians 6.17, Paul says he bears in his body the marks of Jesus. These are most likely referring to the scars from his stoning and his whippings. The other disciples, they probably think Paul is dead. They walk out there and they're looking at him like, we're going to bury him here. We're going to take him back. What do I? I don't know what to do with him. But Paul opens his eyes, verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. Like, what? He gets back up and goes into this. I don't know if that's bravery or stupidity. From my, from my enlightened perspective, <laughs> I don't think I would do that. But that probably spoke volumes more than a thousand sermons ever could have. They, the people in the city would have seen Paul, who they were sure was dead, not healed, but dragged himself back in like the walking dead, bruised and bloody, making his way back in here. And let me ask you a question. Would you have gone back into town? 
No, I think about that too. I don't think I would have. I think it would have been like, okay, I'm going the other way. Paul's whole missionary journey starts out with the Holy Spirit of God saying, set aside for me Paul and Barnabas to go do my work. Now, yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. And if you look at Paul and Barnabas' journey, it doesn't seem like it's good news unless you like getting beaten, right? What's going on with them? The writer of the book of Hebrews speaks of heroes of the faith like this, Hebrews 11, 36 to 38. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Ever wonder why? Why that takes place like that? Like, why does Paul himself find it so difficult? Why didn't God just make everything easy? I don't have all the answers, and I, you know, I'm not expecting you to respond, but you ever think about that? So I was reading through some stuff, and I came across this uh, thing that Chuck Swindoll said years ago. He's this old preacher. And Chuck Swindoll tells the stories about, about codfish in the northeastern United States. I'm not a fish fan, so I don't think I've ever eaten it. But he said there's a market for this eastern cod all over that seaboard and then inland. He said the public demand was actually posing a problem for the shippers because at first they froze the cod and they shipped it to where it was supposed to go. But when they thawed it out, it tasted kind of fishy and not as good as when it came out of the water. I don't know why fish isn't supposed to be fishy because it's fish, but okay, whatever. So they experimented with shipping it alive in tanks of water. But when it got there, it was mushy and lost all its flavor anyway. So they didn't know what to do until one creative person said, why don't we throw a catfish into the tank? Because a catfish is a natural predator for these codfish. And so from the time the cod left their east coast until it arrived at their westernmost destination, this catfish was chasing them over the tank, so they kept swimming the entire time. And they found that when the cod arrived at market, when it finally got to where it was supposed to go, it actually tasted better than when it first came out of the water. If anything, it was better than before it left. And so Chuck Swindoll says this, maybe what is true of the codfish is also true for the church. And I was like, Oh, wow. Because Jesus could have arranged the world in such a way that the church should, could thrive in very easy environments and could live happily ever after until Jesus came to take us home with him forever. But what happens when things get very comfortable for you? We start to love our comfort. We start to hang on to our comfort and not start to trust God in all the ways that he calls us to. And maybe one of the reasons that it's hard for the church and he places it into hostile environments is because it causes us to trust him. And it causes us to grow. The church has always been in a hostile environment known as the world. From the very first time of its inception, there's been opposition and difficult circumstances. And through it all, the beauty of it is the church has not only survived, it's actually thrived and grown by leaps and bounds. It's covered the earth. Uh, there, there's this quote, and I'm going to butcher the guy's name. He's, he's long dead, but I'm going to butcher it anyway, so I'm sorry if he related to him in some way. Um, but his name was Yamalian Yaroslavsky. And he said this, he said, Christianity is like a nail. The harder you strike it, the deeper it goes. And that's true for Paul, right? The harder he got struck, the the deeper his faith in Christ became. This is what happens. He rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, I'd like to get that story because that sounds like a better story. Uh, They returned, like what? To Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They went back to each one of these places. And maybe people started to believe because of what Paul went through and how he trusted God in the midst of it. Why do you go back? Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 
Let me show you a couple things that happen out of this. Uh, first off is this. Lystra is a town where Paul would recruit two ladies known as uh, Lois and Eunice, which is great because women in the ancient world were not thought highly of, and yet you see Paul recruits these ladies in this city, and eventually their son slash grandson, this guy named Timothy. There are a couple books in the Bible that are named after Timothy because they were written to him, and in those books we get most of the qualifications for deacons and elders in the church today. The second thing, what happened to Paul was no surprise. I told you this last week. Paul knew these things probably would happen. Jesus says, Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Living the way that God calls us to is not always the easiest. We are told that the cross is God bringing peace between us and him, taking away our sin and bringing us back into relationship with him again. But the cross is also offensive to people. Because it calls us to lay aside all that we are and trust all that he is. We surrender ourselves to him. And so though the cross is about peace, many times it brings division. But God is on a rescue mission for the world, and he calls us to be part of that. The third thing is in John 15 and 16, Jesus says the world may hate you. But in John 15 verse 8, he says, keep in mind that it hated me first. What that means is we're in good company. We really are. Jesus reminds us that people are going to reject you. But in the end, the rejection is not so much of you. It's of God himself, of God the Father. And the question then becomes why. If we love others and follow Jesus, why do others get to the place where they will hate us? And I don't say that in a victim mentality like, oh, woe is me. Look how terrible I have it. Because Paul wasn't really like that. The answer to that question is why it is hard is Jesus coming to the world is light. And we are called to be people who reflect that light. And many people today in the world, including a lot of us, at times live in darkness. And the light exposes our sin, and we don't like it. And if you love God to any degree in your life, there are people who will not like you because you will be reflecting God's light into this darkness. If you walk with God uprightly, if you walk with God uprightly, by virtue of your life, you will point out the crookedness of things around you, and people don't like that. And when I say this, I am assuming that you're living out the results of the gospel. Now, you're not being a self-righteous jerk, just pointing your finger at everybody else, like a, like a hyper-religious weirdo like the, a lot of the people in the book of Acts who go after Paul, but someone who understands the gospel and lives out in grace and hope and love and life. People will still hate you even when you live like that. If we begin to live for Jesus, we will become a measure of God's grace to the world. At least we should. And Jesus says when that happens, you can expect negative reactions. And our response to negative reactions is not to declare some type of culture war. It means we continue to declare love. Because when we declare love, sometimes people see that as a declaration of war. Because people don't like real love. They want it exactly how they think it's supposed to be because they're more enlightened. And it has to be like this. And if God is like this, well, then God is love. But if God doesn't do this, well, then that's not really God. We always are placing God into a little box. See, Paul is a guy who lives like Jesus. And I think when we see what Jesus did, it will humble us and change us. Jesus comes. He is killed in the end for bringing hope and righteousness. He's placed in the grave. He rises from that grave. And he even comes to those who put him in that grave and offer them hope and life again. When we become a people who trust him, I think we begin to live like him. And there are things that will happen to us because we begin to live like him. But I think like Paul, what else can we, what can we do? It's not that we want to be a people who imitate Paul. We want to be a people who imitate Jesus. We want to be his ambassadors to the world. This is what God calls us to be as his church, his hands and feet to the world, not his protesters to the world. You know, not his people who lift up certain political candidates to the world. He wants us to be his hands and feet to the world. That's who we're meant to be. 
And when we live out that way, that only comes from first understanding the good news of God's rescue of us. We have to understand what God did to rescue us. And in understanding that, as we begin to speak about it, that will at some times be offensive to other people. It doesn't mean that we're trying to be. It just means that it simply is at times. And so we then become a people who trust and live out in this world who he is so that people would know and come to the life-saving understanding of who he is and what we do. And the, one of the ways we try and get you to come back to that understanding of the gospel every week is to take you to this place of communion. It's where you break that cracker with, like Christ's body was broken for us. You will dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me because this is what God did to rescue us. And this, again, is offensive to a lot of people because it says that we are a people who had sin in our lives, that we are a people who had broken relationship with God and one another, and yet we couldn't pay for that ourselves, so God comes and does that himself. The good news of the gospel is God's reconciliation of us to him, and now we get to be messengers of that reconciliation out into the world. And again, it may not always go well, but we are people who trust him. And I would say, the harder you get pounded, hopefully the deeper your faith goes. Because God loves you and longs to restore you to who he's calling you to be. The band's going to come up. As they're going to bite you, I said, take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, uh, they would love to pray with you. If you're in a place today, maybe you have shared the gospel with somebody else and it hasn't gone well. And you would like to pray with somebody that, you know, maybe in the midst of that, uh, that your faith would deepen to be like that nail that just goes deeper and deeper in the midst of that. That maybe you want to share the gospel with somebody, but you're afraid to. You know how it's going to go about. Maybe you don't even know how to even begin to talk about it, and you want someone to pray with you about. They'd love to pray with you about any of those things, because we are a people who God sets out to be His hands and feet, His representative, His ambassadors to the world, and that is such a great privilege. And I would say that we need to understand first who he is and what he has done so we can actually begin to live in that rescue. Um, there's offering boxes next to every door we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We don't pass the plate. It's always a response to what God has done. Uh, there's some food outside. I think there's a bunch of donuts last service. You can grab something to eat, take some sermon notes, meet some other people. Maybe start to walk through some of those questions with each other. Maybe is there a place in your life where you thought you'd like to share the gospel, but it hasn't gone so well? Is there a place where maybe you know, you've seen the cross be an offense, even though you were trying to offer love and grace and hope to somebody else? You know, maybe you can begin to talk about those things, about maybe where God is even calling you right now, today, to share with others who he is and the goodness of who he is. And you want someone to pray with you uh, through that, someone to walk through some of the questions with you about that. They, we, you know, we'd love to be able to do that with you. That's what God does. He takes us as a people, places us in the community with each other, and sends us on a mission out in the world. Because when I say you are meant to be God's hands and feet to the world, it's not just you. It's all of us. You know, Paul and Barnabas seem to go in these places all alone. You, you are not alone. You have an entire church community that's not just element, but the church of the entire world that stands with you in the midst of all of this, reminding us who God is and his great rescue of us. So let's be a people who speak of his good news and his grace and his redemption. Would you guys pray with me? Father, this morning, I do ask that you would take and move us to be a people who understand your hope and your life better and better. Father, so often we tend to be a people who get in places of comfort, and we love that comfort more than we tend to love you and your call in our lives. And so you send things into our lives or allow things into our lives 
that blow apart the boxes that we put you in. And you continue to reveal yourself to us. And so today, I ask that whatever boxes that we have confined you in based on our own personal enlightenment, that you would begin to blow those things apart. And you would reveal who you truly are. That we would understand that there is nothing in the end that can separate us from who you are. That you have brought to us reconciliation and redemption in life because we could never attain it on our own because we are the ones who had run away from it. And yet you come in grace and hope and love to restore us to who you are. Teach us today to be a people who live in that great restoration. That we'd understand how you have walked with us every step of our lives, even when we didn't even realize it. And that as we step out into this world to speak of who you are and what you have done, we had a great confidence because of your rescue of us. Father, to have us have complete confidence and faith in who you are and your rescue and your salvation. We ask this all in your son's good name. Amen.